If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn them to the book of Luke chapter 11. We're actually going to be in two different passages of Scripture today, and I'll explain that in a minute while we're doing that. But we're finishing up a series of messages that we started three weeks ago, and so it's a four-week series called Even Greater. And the idea behind this passage or behind this series of messages and the passage that we're going to look at today is the probably, to me, the most incredible, astounding verse in all of Scripture. It's one of those, again, that I would not necessarily believe to be true, except that it's in Scripture and that it's taught there. And it comes in the book of John, chapter 14, and it's this verse that says, I assure you that the one who believes in me, and so we've talked about for the last three weeks, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are someone that has accepted salvation from him that he offered in his death on the cross, resurrection from the grave, if that is you, then he is saying you. I assure you that you will do the works that I do. The amazing, unbelievable works that Jesus does. You're going to do works like that. And he, she, will do even greater works than these. And that phrase, even greater, is just fascinating to me. Because the truth is, it says in there, and the idea is, first of all, we would do more. Because the Spirit of God is now in those who are followers of Jesus, we'd be going to more places, do more things for the glory of God. So that's true. But it also means even greater, the original word means even greater in kind, or in magnitude. That we would do greater works than Jesus has done. He says, because I am going to the Father. And so for the last three weeks, we've talked about what does that mean? What does it mean even greater? What, well, how does that happen? What does that look like in a church? And we've looked at the book of Acts as we've done that, and we've seen how the early church began to do even greater things. And two weeks ago, as a part of that, I asked you to pray a prayer for us as a church, for you as an individual. A prayer that we would pray for the rest of this series and through the Invite Your One Sunday. And it's the prayer that asks God to awaken our affections so that we may obey His Spirit and surrender to His mission. We say, God, awaken our affections so that we may obey Your Spirit and surrender to Your mission. And the reason that we have talked about that prayer and the reason that I've asked you to pray is because I believe that bold, persistent prayer is at the root level, at the foundation level of every major move of God. I read a couple of uh, quotes this week that really just kind of reminded me of this, helped me to focus for today. And the first one is from a guy named Andrew Murray. And he says that the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. Over the last three weeks, we've talked about this idea of even greater. And I believe that God has even greater days ahead for First Baptist Goodlessville. And that's not just hype. That's not just me trying to get us all fired up. I truly believe that God has even greater days ahead of us as a church. But that it will not happen until we get serious about prayer. Every major movement of God in history, whether in a nation, on a college campus in a youth group, in a small group of believers, in a workplace environment, in a family. Every great movement of God begins with intense, persistent, bold prayer. Every single one. 
And our enemy, God's enemy, will do anything in his power to prevent prayer from happening. Look at this quote. This is the second quote I read this week. The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, or prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. There's no power like that of prevailing prayer. And so today, as we finish up this series on even greater things, I want us to focus on the issue of prayer. I want us to ask the question, what kind of prayer does God demand from those of us who want to see even greater things happen through us and through the church? And I want to speak to it for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it is necessary for us to see prayer in order to see God move. But secondly, because I know from all the research out there that it is an area that is extremely lacking in the normal Christian life. D.A. Carson, who's a scholar, has said that if you really want to embarrass the average Christian, just ask them to give an honest answer about his or her prayer life. He cites a study, this is just amazing to me, of students training to be missionaries. Listen to this study. These are students training to be missionaries. When asked how many of them had regular quiet times, times of scripture, and devoting themselves to prayer. How many of you have regular prayer time, regular time scripture, regular time alone with God? And of the students training to be missionaries, 6% responded they did. Six. And Carson says, it would be painful and embarrassing to uncover the prayer life of our leaders, our pastors, and the people in our pews. And the question that I just asked this week was, what if God has more for us? What if God has more for us as a church? What if God has more for you and your family? What if God has more for us and we are going to miss it because we never ask? Now, some of you are skeptical about that because you've asked the Lord for things, you've prayed for things, and it just hasn't happened. Or you've gotten things that you didn't even pray about. But scripture teaches us that if any movement of God is going to happen, it's going to happen because God's people pray. So we're going to look first at Luke chapter 11. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to let you in on a little secret of sermon preparation. All right, I've been doing it for nine years with you. So I figure it's, it's okay to give you a little bit secret of the sauce here. All right. And here's what I try to do every week in sermon preparation is I try to find a passage of scripture Take what the scripture is teaching us about God, a doctrine kind of element, and then ask what does that mean for us and how can we apply it to our lives, all right? It's not really a big secret. That's what everybody teaches for you to do, all right? And so you try to find something that the scripture teaches. How does it apply to life? Well, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to see how one scripture impacted and is applied in another place. So here's what I want to do, all right? We're going to talk about the book of Luke. Let me ask you a quick question, not a trick question. It ought to be a softball. Who wrote the book of Luke? Luke, all right? How many of you got that right? Let me see your hands. Good, good for you. How many of you didn't answer because you don't answer in church? You're not going to raise your hand because you don't do that either, all right? 
So Luke wrote the book of Luke, all right? Now here's the second question, all right, a little bit tougher because it's not as, you know, self-explanatory. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, all right? It follows. So Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts. And in fact, they're together. They are a, what do you call it when it's two books, not three books? Like three books is a trilogy. I I don't know what two books is. Two books, is that what you call it, right? Duology, two books, all right? So there are two books, part one and part two. And they are supposed to go together. I know in your Bible there's a book in between them. I understand that. But you're supposed to read Luke and then go right into Acts. They're supposed to be together. And oftentimes what happens is in the book of Luke you get the doctrine, you get the biblical teaching, and in the book of Acts you get the application of that. And so today we're going to look at Jesus' teaching on prayer, and then we're going to see how the apostles and the early church applied that. And it starts in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. He, that's Jesus, was praying in a certain place. And when he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Now here's what's interesting to me, and you see this in Scripture. This is not the only place. There's another place where the apostles asked, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Is that they noticed in all of his preaching, all of his miracles, and all of his amazing feats, that the thing that gave him the power in all that was his prayer. They never asked Jesus, show us how to do miracles. They never asked Jesus how to put a sermon together. They asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Because they knew that prayer was the foundation of everything they were going to do. And so Jesus answers their question first by telling them the Lord's Prayer. And you know that from Matthew chapter 5, but also here, Matthew 6. And here you have uh, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He teaches them that. He teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And then he tells this rather odd story about a man who had unexpected visitors one night. His visitors were hungry and he didn't have any bread, so he went next door to ask. Here's how the story starts in the next verse. He said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. And so he says that, he tells this story, he says, it's like this, pretend that you go next door to your friend's house because you've got a visitor in, you don't have any bread, and you say, hey, I need three loaves of bread. Now, in their culture, when they heard this story, their first thought would have been, oh my goodness, the gall of that man asking that. How could he? This is not going next door in the middle of the afternoon asking for a spoonful of sugar, Right? This is going next door at midnight asking for three loaves of bread. There are two or three reasons why this was just a brash claim. First of all, because it's the middle of the night. And in the middle of the night, what are most people doing? Sleeping, right? That's a spe- that's true for us at midnight. Like most people in this room, most people in this room are asleep at midnight, okay? I don't need to know if you're not. If you're a one or two o'clock in the morning person, most of us in this room are sane and are asleep at midnight, okay? And so most people in the history of the world at midnight are asleep. That's especially true when they didn't have electricity and the sun went down at a seven o'clock. When the sun went down, so did they. Like they went to bed. Which, by the way, I'm just going to tell this is this is free. I'm going to give you a little free something here. This is Lyle's scientific theory. You ready for this? All right. If you are or not, you're getting it, okay? Here's one of the things I think, all right? I'm always more exhausted in winter than summer. Like I'm always more tired in winter and summer. That's because I think God intended for us to hibernate. 
like to sleep and eat. And so like when the sun goes down at like 2.45 in the afternoon in the winter, like it's time to go to bed, right? And so when you don't, when we all stay up on our screens and watching stuff till 10 o'clock, we are going against the history of the world as God created it. Lyle's free scientific theories for you. Nothing to do with the sermon. Back to the sermon, all right? And so they're asleep and it's at midnight. Now, secondly, not only are they asleep and it's midnight, they're asleep, it's midnight, and everybody slept in the same room. And so if dad's got to get up to go get the door, what does that mean? Everybody's awake. In a household that he would have been talking to, there would have been, and they're talking, you're talking like three or four generations. And you know how terrible that would be if you have ever had a child under the age of two. That when they get to sleep, you do everything in your power to prevent someone from waking them up. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? Like, you don't want that to happen. And so, like, you're, like, you're tiptoeing through, you're barely shutting doors, like, you're walking, you go to get something, and everything sounds louder. Like, like, you go to get something out of the pantry, and it's like, like, it just sounds louder. Well, imagine if you gotta get up, the whole family's gotta get up, the baby wakes up, everybody's up, and when everybody gets up, it's a long time before everybody gets back to bed, and so you're waking up the whole family. And thirdly, he asked for three loaves of bread, which was enough to feed a family for several days. It was a brash neighbor making a ridiculously excessive request at a most inopportune time. And Jesus says you're going to give it to him. And here's why. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his friend's persistence. He will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now remember, what was the question the disciples asked? Teach us to pray. And he tells them the Lord's prayer. And then he tells them this story. It says it's because they're persistent. In fact, one version says it's because of his impudence. Not a word we use a lot. One translation says, his shameless persistence. He comes over and he knocks and he asks. And it's so bold and it's so brash and it's so continual that you give in. And you give him the case of Pop-Tarts and you tell him to go back to his house. His boldness and his persistence in asking. And then Jesus says, won't your heavenly father who never sleeps and who loves you like a child, won't he give you whatever you need to do his will. If an annoying neighbor can have an excessive request granted at an inopportune time through persistent asking, don't you think when you're not an annoying neighbor, when God sees you as a child and he is a willing father, that God's going to give you what you need? And then he goes on to say this. He tells them this verse. He says, so I tell you, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Three verbs he used here. Ask, seek, knock. And in the original language, it is this persistent, ongoing, never stopping, asking, seeking, knocking. It reinforces this continual action, this persistence. It's not enough, you see, to ask once. You gotta keep on asking. You gotta keep on knocking. You gotta keep on searching. When you knock on a door once, and don't do anything else, if it's somebody that you don't want to open the door for, or you don't know who it is, if there's one knock, and then they go, you don't worry about it. 
But if they stand at your door and are... You go, when are you going to stop? We get the point, right? If they're doing that, what are you going to do? You may not be happy when you open the door. Yeah, Chris Baggis cocking a gun over here. That is a whole other issue we're going to have to talk about anger. All right. If they're buzzing the doorbell over and over and over again, you may not be excited when you open the door, but you know what you're going to do? You're going to open the door. If nothing else, to tell them to stop. To quit. And I don't understand this. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. But that's how Jesus tells us to come to the Father. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking. You say, well, what? If God knows what we need, and we ask God for what we need, why didn't God just give it to us when we asked the first time? And here's my answer to that. I don't have a clue. But here's what I know. When Jesus told us how to pray, He said, keep asking. Keep seeking, keep knocking. In case they missed this, several chapters later in the book of Luke, he tells them another illustration of a widow that goes to a judge who didn't fear God, didn't fear men, didn't care anything about it. And she goes and asks him for something, and he says, to get her off my back, I will give her what she wants. He's not saying that God is a, is a, a judge who doesn't care about people that doesn't want. His contrast is to that. He says, listen, if a judge will do that, How much more will God do it? And then at the end of this part in Luke chapter 11, verse 11, he tells the story of a child. And he says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's an interesting place for God to say that we're evil. For Jesus to pronounce those of you who are evil. And he's not saying necessarily that he's not insulting us. He's not kind of digging at us here. He's just saying that even when you think you're the best, it is nothing compared to the goodness of God. And most of us think we're at our best when it comes to being a parent. But he says even in that, compared to God, you're not. I was thinking about this morning as I was um, reviewing message and thinking through things. I was thinking about last night. Last night at the wedding, um, I had the privilege of being the one that officiated the wedding. I was the officiant. All right? And I was standing here on stage, and uh, it's always just a cool moment for me when I'm standing on stage and all the bridesmaids are coming in. You've got all the groomsmen on stage, and so you've got all these people that are so important to the two people that are coming and witnessing it. You look out in the congregation, and it's all these people from different areas of their lives. You know, for Ellie and Vincent, there was Georgia people, Kentucky people, and Center Kid people, and people from this church, and people that they'd known in other places in life. And you just get them all together in that one place, and so it's just a really cool moment to see people walking down and all that happening. But for me, last night was a little bit special. No, not a little bit. It was a real, a lot special. Because right before the bride came down, two flower girls came. And they were mine. And when that, they started, I'd seen them dressed up. You know, I mean, I had already had the moment earlier in the day when Susan called. They were getting their hair done, you know. 
getting the flowers in their hair and all that. And they had these beautiful white dresses and they're getting their hair done. And Susan goes, okay, it's time for makeup. I was like, wait, 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 wait. That wasn't part of the whole discussions here, right? The whole makeup thing. I didn't know about that with my four-year-old and they loved it. All right. And so as they're walking down the aisle, and here's the thing, you know, sometimes you have flower girls, you worry about, are they going to do their task? We never worried about whether Maddie and Ava were going to do their task. My worry was they were going to feel so comfortable in their task that they were going to make it all about them and be real excited but they did perfect coming and they're walking down the aisle and I'm watching my two girls walk down the aisle and just so proud and I really I thought this I just in my mind I thought how could I love those two girls anymore and yet scripture teaches me that God's love for me is so great that it makes my love for those two girls seem like hate It's not because I don't love them. That's about how much he loves us. And he says, when you've got something you need in life, when you've got something that you want to bring before the Father, you come as kids to a Father who wants to give you what you need. You've been around a kid that wants something and they're asking you for it. Persistent comes to mind. Bold comes to mind. We had told our girls, we told Luke, who was a part of reading scripture in the wedding last night, we told the kids, listen, if y'all do well, and you, we don't have any problems, and y'all do your parts, and all that, you do well, we, like good parents, told them that if you do that, you will get a treat afterwards, right? Okay? Believe in that. And so, we had not been in the car 30 seconds. Hey, Dad, where's our treats? Like, we don't have it with us. Well, are we going to get it now? No, we're not going to get it now. We're going home because we have church tomorrow. Well, when are we going to get our treat? Like, we got asked multiple times. We got home, we got changed out. Ava comes, sits in my lap, you know, in the recliner and goes, Dad, when are we getting our treat? <laughs> like, persistent, bold. Like, they don't worry about whether we're going to give it to them or not. It's just like, let's go. I want it now. And I guarantee you, until they get their treats, which is coming soon, You know what? They're going to ask about it continually until they get it. And that's how we're to approach our Heavenly Father. Persistently, boldly asking Him for what we need. Jesus says that we're to ask like kids, bold, shameless, and persistent. And a lot of us don't have prayers answered in our lives because we're reluctant to ask or we stop before it's time. So that's the theology, that's the doctrine. Turn in your Bibles just a couple of books over to Acts chapter 12. We're going to see how this plays out and then we're going to be done. Acts chapter 12, one of my, just an amazing story for a couple of reasons. In Acts chapter 12, my favorite story is in Acts. It's a story about Peter. You've got your Bibles open to Acts chapter 12. This isn't going to be on the screen. This is going to be, uh, it wasn't even going to be referenced, but I think it's important to give you kind of background on what's really happening here. This is when persecution in the church is really starting to ramp up. Even after, we talked about last week, Stephen being martyred. What happens then is uh, Paul comes and becomes a Christian, but it doesn't stop the persecution. Persecution ramps up. In fact, if you just look in Acts chapter 12, the first five verses of Acts chapter 12 are about a martyr happening. 
happening. And it's not just any martyr. If you remember in Jesus' inner circle were three people. It was Peter, James, and John, right? Peter, James, and John. Those were the three on the Mount of Transfiguration. Those were the three that were in inner circle. Well, in Acts chapter 12, the first few verses of Acts chapter 12, James, John's brother, is run through by a sword. And Herod sees that it pleased the Jews, so he arrests Peter. So this is serious moments happening here in the early life of the church. They had three main leaders at this point, Peter, James, and John. And James has just been killed and Peter has been arrested. And verse 5 tells us, so Peter was kept in prison. And while he's in prison, while he is there, while James has been killed, while Peter is arrested awaiting execution, while he's there, prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. Now, the scripture teaches us here that it wasn't just normal prayer. It was earnest prayer. It was persistent prayer. It was bold prayer. They were coming to the Father on a regular basis asking for miraculous things to happen. Look at verse 6. On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution, Peter, so here's the thing, James has been killed, Peter's in prison, Peter is getting groomed, the next day they're going to take him out and kill him in front of the Jews to please the Jews. Peter was bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers, while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Now why in the world is all that information in there? Why did they give us all those details about the chains and the soldiers and the door being guarded by sentries. Why does it tell us that? So it's impossible to escape. There's no way out. He's there, chains wrapped around him, soldiers on either side. And then there are sentries in front of the door guarding the prison. Next verse. Church is still praying. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick! Get up! Now I... I Put striking bold there because I found this really cool thing this week. Um, that word in the original language means to hit with excessive force. This is not waking your child up when it's 45 minutes before they have to get up. It's not the sweet, hey baby, it's time to get up. Hey, it's time to get up. It's, the, it's Monday. I know it's hard to get up. Let's go ahead and get up out of bed and get our clothes on. This is, you got to be out of the door at 6.55 and it's 6.50. Get up! Let's go! And it says they hits him, like strikes him, and says, get up and go. And if to further make it feel like you're trying to get your kid ready for school, look at what happens next. Go to the next verse there. The chains fell off his wrist, and then the angel's going, come on, get dressed. And the angel says, put on your shoes, wrap the coat, get your coat on, let's go. Like, you see that? You feel that? Like, come on, where are your shoes at? I don't know where, I don't, I don't know where they are either. But find them, let's put them on, let's get in the car, we need your coat on, let's get that, zip it up, it's cold outside, let's go, alright? Follow me, just come on, just come on, let's go, let's go. Some of you will think of Peter now in the morning, when Monday morning hits, alright? So he went out and followed, and he did not, I love this, Peter did not know what took place, though the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Peter is still in dreamland. Angel's like, let's go, let's go, come on. They get out, and he's like, what in the, I don't know. He's like, any of y'all have a child that's like in a daze for the first ten minutes they wake up in the morning? Yeah, okay. Any of you in a daze for like the first 10 minutes in the morning, all right? So it's like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. He thought he was seeing a vision. Next verse. After they passed the first and second guard post, 
It's like they've left two guards standing there. Chains have come off. They've gone past one guard post, another guard post. They came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside past one street. This is, we're way into the journey now. And immediately the angel left. And then the scripture tells us that Peter finally realized what was going on. Look at the next verse. And Peter came to himself and said, Whoa, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. I get it now. He's rescued me. So he decides to go to where the church is, where he knows they're going to be. He realized this. He went off to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where, notice this, many had assembled and were praying. The idea there is not that they had been praying and they had stopped. The idea was not that they would be praying and would stop. The idea was that they were going to pray until God gave them an answer about what was going to happen to Peter. They were prepared for his death if necessary, but they were asking God to stop it. And then you have this little cool kind of thing here. He knocked at the door in the gateway and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. I love how it gives us specific people. Rhoda came to answer. Next verse. She recognized Peter's voice. (laughs) And because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gateway. Now get this picture, all right? You're Peter. An angel of the Lord has delivered you from prison when you were going to be executed the next day. Where is probably not a safe place to be? Outside on the streets. And so Rhoda comes to the gate and you're like, hey Rhoda, it's Peter. Hey, uh, and she's like, oh, it's you, let me go tell everybody. Uh, could you, could you open the gate? Like, the scripture says she left him. Standing at the gate, gate closed, and she goes back in and then she tells the people this. Look what she tells them. The nugget. You're crazy, they told us, huh, Peter? But she kept insisting. And one of the things you're going to see throughout this passage is persistence. Persistence. She kept insisting that it was true. And then they said, it's his angel. Now, I want to tell you, this is so typical of the people of God. What have they been praying for all night? Peter to be released. And somebody comes and says, Peter's been released. And they're what? No, it can't happen. We've been praying about that. That can't be happening. It's like the disciples, right? We've been, oh, we don't know what we're going to do when Jesus has died. What's going to happen? And they come to Thomas and like, he's raised again. They're like, he's like, no, he hadn't done that. He couldn't have done that. Like God's people are praying for something to happen. It happens and they're like, I don't really know that that's what it was. I don't know if that's really happened. Can I tell you this? One of the really cool things, okay? That could happen this week. As you, in a few minutes, you're going to bring up who you're going to invite. As you invite people, can I tell you what's really cool? Is you don't know where along that journey you're encountering this person. And for some of you, you're going to begin praying this week for that person. And you're going to persistently pray. And that invitation, they may say no. They may refuse to come. But it will be the beginning of a seed that is planted in their life. That may eventually come to know them knowing Jesus. For some of you, you're going to invite somebody that God's been working on their heart for two years. And this isn't the seed that's being planted. This is the harvest that is happening. Peter, however, kept on knocking. Don't you like it when the Bible coordinates with itself? It's the same phrase that Jesus tells people. Keep on knocking. Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astounded. 
Next verse finishes it up. Motioning to them with his hand. Get this. Peter's out there. You can imagine. They come, Ah, it's Peter! Woo! Peter's like, Hey, calm down. Like, I I know we're excited. I don't want to be killed again. All right? Let's, let's work on that. All right? He tells them to be silent. He explains to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Report these things to James and the birds. Like, I can't go see James. I can't endanger them. Right now, if I go to James, I mean, you know, like, all this stuff is going to happen. Can't do that. Then he departed and went to a different place. Three things real quickly I want you to see in this passage about how we should pray. That's an application of what Jesus did. That shows us how it happened here. First of all, when you're scared, when you're worried, when you're afraid, talk to God about your fears. It's hard for us to understand the background of these people and how afraid they were. Because none of us have ever hunkered in a house overnight, scared to death that we're going to be pulled out and arrested because we believe in Jesus and brought before the Jewish people the next day and killed. And that's what they were facing. And instead of getting in a group and just talking amongst themselves and worrying, 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 they turned it over to the Lord. Eugene Peterson has a book called Answering God, How to Pray the Psalms. And he talks about the difference between evening prayers and morning prayers. The evening prayers are those moments when we tell God our worries, our concerns, the threats to our lives, things that we're sad about, things that we're mad about, and we lay it before God and we give it to Him. What they're doing, in a sense, is evening prayer. They don't know what to do. They don't know what Peter... They've lost one of their leaders. Peter's the next leader. If they lose him, what's going to happen? We don't know. But we are laying it before your feet. God, we're giving it to you. David in Psalm 4 is giving God all the things he's mad about, all the things he's scared about. And then he says this, and I love this line. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O God, make me dwell in safety. He says, God, I'm mad about this. I'm sad about this. I'm upset about this. I can't sleep because of this. But I'm going to lay it at your feet. And when I do, I can dwell in safety and I can sleep. You see, when you worry... And let's be honest, for many of us in this room, the time when worry really creeps into our mind are those night hours. Before we go to bed, right before it's time to go to sleep, and as we're there worrying about stuff, we can turn it over to one who controls the universe, from one who says that he would hold no good thing from us, from one who cares for me like a father, who promises to direct all my steps. You can lay it at his feet. I want to encourage you. Just for this week, just try it for this week. That at night before you go to bed to spend five to ten minutes just telling the Lord everything you're concerned about, worried about, scared about, upset about, mad about, sad about. Say, here it is, Lord, and I'm giving it to you right now. There's a book out there called The Four-Hour Work Week. It's written by God. It's a leadership book about how you can condense a lot of stuff. And he talks about all the ways you can do that. And one of the ways that he has, this author has in his life, is he has a virtual assistant in India. And every night, he sends off a list of tasks for the virtual assistant in India to do. And so when he goes off the clock at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, she begins to work on those. And then when he gets up in the morning at like uh, 7.30, 8 o'clock and checks his email, it's all been done for him. So he said, it's really been freeing because I give a task, I go to bed, and I wake up, and it's done. 
And so he got to wondering one time that he noticed that at night he was really worrying about his business, really worrying about stuff. And so he emailed his virtual assistant and said, could I ask you to do one thing for me? Can I give you a list of things that I worry about with my business? And could you worry about them at night for me so I don't have to? And his virtual assistant sent back a report and said, Dear sir, I would be glad to worry about these things from 6 o'clock at night until 6 o'clock in the morning so you are not having to worry about them. And this guy talked about how freeing it is. And I read that and I'm just like, don't you realize that we have somebody, not a virtual assistant in India, but one who is outside of time and space that will do that for us. We lay it at his feet and he says, I will take your worries upon myself and give you peace in the midst of it. So that we can rest. Secondly, not only talk to God about your fears, but secondly, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. You think, what in the world are you talking about there? I grew up before cell phones existed. How many of you in this room grew up before cell phones existed? No hands right here, please. All right. Right, And when I grew up and no cell phones existed, when we were in the neighborhood and we were wanting to communicate with each other, there weren't good ways to communicate with each other other than ride your bike to your friend's house and tell them that you want to communicate with them. Right? Until one of my friends for Christmas got the best walkie-talkies that Radio Shack had to offer. Y'all remember when Radio Shack was like a legitimate store? Like, and they sold like really cool gadgets. And my friend down the street got a walkie-talkie that we could talk to each other through. And it was the greatest thing in our lives. We didn't talk about anything. Are you there? I'm there. Do you copy? I copy. What are you doing? Nothing. Kind of like texting today. We didn't talk about anything. Right? But it was great. And the truth is that if for centuries, not centuries, but as long as walkie-talkies have been around, that's 150 years, they have been used in wartime to communicate between the front lines and support. And they're used to communicate essential ideas about how we're going to move forward. Now, the domestic intercom is when I talk about when uh, somebody is upstairs and they need something and they get on the intercom and say, hey, can you bring me this upstairs? Also known as yelling in houses. Like, hey, I need that. Bring it upstairs. And it's just for comfort. This is what John Piper says. Maybe this will help make sense. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. Anybody here ever watch Downton Abbey? Anybody here? Downton Abbey's a show that's on PBS, and it was about servants down below in England in the turn of the century that served the people that lived upstairs. And they had a bell system. And they'd ring the bell, and Lady Edith needed something upstairs. Lady Mary needed her something of comfort upstairs. And when we treat God in prayer time... Like the servant downstairs that's supposed to bring stuff to make us comfortable. We are misusing the purpose of prayer. It is wartime discussion. So many of our prayers are focused on things that don't matter a ton or have already been given to us in the first place. 
God be with us. Scripture teaches us that if we're followers of Christ, he will never leave us nor forsake us. He's here. He's with us. Help me with my test. God wants to look at us sometimes and say, you know, I gave you a brain to be able to study for seven days for that test. Don't expect the answers when you hadn't looked at it today. Or we'll sit over a half pound hamburger topped with three strips of bacon and onion straws and say, Lord, bless this food to the nourishment of my body. And God's like, get some broccoli. The blessing's already inside. Right? Prayer is about wartime battlefront communication. These people, they knew that God wanted to advance the gospel. They knew that was their purpose in life. They knew that's what he wanted to do and that what his will will accomplish. And they don't know what's going to happen with Peter, but they're praying that God would do something to advance the gospel. And our prayers have to be things that are asking God to advance the gospel. And here's the last thing. Be persistent. They knew it was God's will to get the church, to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. They have a real problem in Peter being imprisoned, James being killed. And they pray and they pray and they pray. And from what we see in Scripture, they don't stop from the moment Peter is imprisoned until he is at the gate and they're convinced they do not stop praying for his release. And I'm afraid that there are times when you and I give up too soon and too easily on what God wants to accomplish. Now here's kind of a cool thing about this, this the way this ends. So when when Peter gets out, it's obviously an embarrassment for Herod. And Herod goes out and gives a speech to kind of calm the crowd. And as he gives a speech to calm the crowd, it is an unbelievable speech. And people go nuts over the speech. In fact, they start to say, that is the voice of God and not of man. They're trying to flatter him because they realize that they want something from him. And it says, Herod... The understanding is bask in the glory given to him instead of the Lord. In verse 23, same chapter, chapter 12, verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And Herod was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So think about what happens at the beginning of chapter 12. Herod's on doing good. He's killed one of the Christians. He's got another one in jail. The leader in jail. He's about to kill him. By the end of the chapter, the leader of the church is out of jail. And Herod is dead, being eaten by worms. And then verse 24 is this really cool verse. All right, You realize that sometimes there's trash talk in the Bible. Like have you ever read the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel? He's trash talking the other gods. Listen, listen to this and tell me if this doesn't sound like trash talk, alright? So verse 23, immediately an angel of the Lord struck down Herod because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Verse 24, but the word of the God increased and multiplied. And the moral of the story of chapter 12 is you don't mess with the church on its knees. Acts 1 says that they prayed in the upper room for 10 straight days. Holy Spirit comes, 3,000 saved. Acts 4, they prayed. God fills them with boldness. They turn the city of Jerusalem upside down. One out of every four people in Jerusalem become followers of Jesus Christ, including some of the harshest critics they have. In Acts chapter 12, they pray. God blows up a prison, releases a prisoner, strikes down Herod, the persecutor with worms. They pray in the next chapter, verse chapter 13. God raises up Paul to be a missionary, the greatest missionary the world has ever known. John Wesley said, God will do nothing except through the means of prayer. And my question to you is, how are you doing? You need to pray personally 
Morning prayers, those are the opposite of eating. Morning prayers are bold kingdom prayers. Prayer those evening prayers where you pray, God, here's all my worries, concerns, things I don't like, mad about, upset about, sad about. Here they are. I lay them at your feet so I can have a good night's rest. You take care of them for me. And in the morning you get up and say, God, help me to be bold for you and persistent in declaring the gospel today as I move out into the battlefield that we call life where your kingdom is advancing. And then we pray together. As a church, we pray for each other. We ask you to pray for this church. Last thing I'll say, I read a story this week about Charles Spurgeon built what many people consider the first megachurch in London in the modern era. American pastor went over to see what he was doing and said, I just want to know what the secret is to your church. And Spurgeon, who had a church of thousands, literally, took him down to the basement. And in the basement there was a room, and in that room were about 300 people praying. Services going up to the top, 300 people praying under below. And Spurgeon said, this is the secret to what God is doing. This is our engine room that drives everything that God is accomplishing upstairs. Let's pray.